monster is a mirror, and when we look at him, we look into our own hidden faces, meditate on this at second level. Is this life reality? No. It is a film. The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Therefore, the television screen is part of the physical structure of the brain. Here is the hair I've lost in the past three months. Take it. It belongs to you. You will know why one day. That's fucking crazy, man. Welcome to Weird Movie Club. I am the Oig and I sound like this. Today's movie is Naked Lunch. And now, your hosts, Anil and Siri. Hello, weirdos, and welcome to the Weird Movie Club podcast. I'm Daniel Wishes. And I'm Siri. Hello, Sarah. It's good to see you again. Yeah, we see each other every day. But we don't always see each other on the podcast. We've had a little bit of a break, a little bit of a lull. Right. We haven't quite been releasing the episodes on the original schedule that I had planned. Mm. So if anyone out there cares, I'm sorry. Today's movie is the first Canadian movie that we're going to watch on the podcast. It's crazy because Canada is famous for weird movies, and yet this is the first weird movie we've done. Yeah, it's weird because you're from Canada. Canada. I don't know why we didn't do it before. It's strange. Yeah. Today's movie is a movie by one of Canada's most prolific and well-respected filmmakers, David Cronenberg. Ooh. And today we are going to be watching his film from 1991, Naked Lunch. Yay! Now, do you know anything about the movie at all? No. I know a bit about the movie, but I've never actually watched it. I've seen most of David Cronenberg's movies, but for some weird reason, I'm embarrassed to admit I've never actually seen Naked Lunch before. Wow. Although, I've wanted to since I was a kid. You know, when I was a kid, I saw Naked Lunch VHS video box and I thought the artwork on the box looked amazing and I wanted to rent it. Mm. But my mom said, no, she wouldn't let me rent it. She said, that's not a movie that's appropriate for anybody of any age. What does it mean? Do you know much about David Cronenberg? Have you seen any of his movies? No, I only know because you're a big fan, right? David Cronenberg is famous for making movies involving body horror. Body horror? Yeah, like, oh. you know, like, uh, what's his name? The the manga guy. Ito Junji? That's right. He's like kind Spiral? Of, yeah, yeah. He's kind of like the Canadian version of that guy, except oh. a filmmaker. In fact, I think that guy might have been inspired a bit by David Cronenberg, but I don't know. I'm just speculating. Hmm. So this movie might be a little bit gross. I haven't seen it yet. I'm just kind of assuming because it's David Cronenberg, but let's check it out and see. I mean, we watch gross movies. A lot of weird movies are gross. I don't think this is a horror movie, but it might be scary. I guess we'll find out. Okay. All right. So we're going to go watch Naked Lunch, which neither of us have seen before. And then we're going to come back from the break and talk all about it. When I started writing Naked Lunch, People offered their opinions. Disgusting, they said. Pornographic, un-American trash, unpublishable. Well, it came out in 1959, and it found an audience. Town meetings, book burnings, and an inquiry by the state Supreme Court. That book made quite a little impression. Now, 30 years later, Hollywood 
in its infinite wisdom, has turned it into a movie. Cover your eyes, America. Run for your lives. All right, and we are back from watching Naked Lunch. Yay! I loved it. I thought it was awesome. I cannot believe I waited this long to watch it. Mm. What did you think? I loved it too. I may be biased because I'm a Canadian, but I think that Canadians dominate the world of weird movies. So let's recap the film Naked Lunch. Yes. It starts with a character named Bill Lee, who is an exterminator using bug powder and he discovers that he's run out of bug powder in the middle of a job. Cut to a restaurant where their friends are Hanks and Martin yeah. and they talk about like some story. Yeah, they're like writers. He goes back to his apartment where his wife, John, is there and she is using the, the and bug she, powder. Yeah, she revealed she's been using the bug powder as drug and his friends are doing it too. And he's in big trouble because he needs that bug powder for work. Yeah. But she's just taking it like it's heroin or something. Yeah, but then he got uh, the bug powder restored and then went to the factory and then suddenly like a detective showed up and took him to their office. He was in big trouble for using the bug powder. Yeah, cause the detectives figured some other uses like as like a drug. So he says, no, really, it's for killing bugs. And they say, we have a bug. So they bring out a giant box, which looks like a donut box to me. I could uh -huh. be wrong. They open it up and a giant bug comes out. Yeah, that was really cool. It's a puppet. Yeah, yeah. lots of weird movies have puppets. It's yeah. great. You should hire us to make puppets for your weird movie because that's our job. Right. Anyway. So the bug looks like kind of half raw half beetle with some brain looking like mouth yeah it has this sort behind. of mouth kind of thing in its thorax I guess that's it I, I'm not a I don't know a lot about bugs but it's got like some anusy looking yeah. thing on its butt and he starts talking to Bill so the bug talks about how it's he's some kind of agent and tells him he's on a mission and has to kill his wife so he thinks it's crazy and he starts attacking by his shoes and kills the bug and he escapes. And also the bug says, warns him that his wife may not be human. Yeah. This is, by the way, this all happens after Bill tries a little bit of the bug powder himself. So, oh yeah, he does. So he, I think he might assume that this is all some kind of hallucination, which he kind of says it is later that he yeah, thinks yeah. it's a hallucination. Oh yeah, and meanwhile, uh, Jones and the drug and she breathes out to some roaches. Yeah, she can kill them with her breath. Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. she, that's one of the advantages to doing that drug, I suppose. Bill lost his equipment with bug powder in it. Yeah, it's confiscated by the police. So he approaches a guy who had that, like his... One of his co-workers. Co-workers, and uh, try to lift it. And uh, the guy noticed and uh, gives him advice to see a doctor. Right, Dr. Ben. And Dr. Benway gives him the black powder. He says this black powder is like kind of a cure, but we also kind of suspect, I think, that it's just like a different kind of drug mm. that he's going to get hooked on. I didn't. Oh, well, I thought so. Right, and the doctor explains that powder is made out of Brazilian centipedes. Right. And he uses it. And then he goes back to his apartment to find out Hanks and his wife, John, are making out. 
with Martin reading some poetry. Poetry. It's disturbing. It's not what you want to see your wife doing when you get home from a hard day of doing <laughs> drugs and killing bugs with shoes. <laughs> then he he looks and he seems I don't know a bit upset. He's hard to read. He How's kind of almost seems like he doesn't care. He's like a very stoic. Character. Mm, right. So he goes to his own bedroom and uses the black powder. Yeah, he shoots up. And then John came to his bedroom and she apologizes. She says it's nothing. She's like, Yeah, don't worry about it. We were we're on drugs, so we can't even really enjoy the sex anyway. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Bear says, Who cares? I don't care. Uh Martin is there as well, and then John says, It's time for William Tell. Routine? I think Bill says it. Pulls out a gun and says it's time for a William Tell routine. Oh, really? I thought it was Bill that said oh, it, suggested okay. it. Yeah. So the William Tell routine is she puts a glass on her head. Right. And he has to shoot it off. But things go wrong. Instead of shooting the glass on top of her head, he shoots his, her forehead. Yeah, which kills her instantly. Yeah, and then Bear leaves the apartment to go to like a cafe or bar. And then one guy approaches him. He introduces his friend. And his friend is this strange alien-like creature called a mugwump. Mugwump. A mugwump seems to know the um, bug he killed before. Yeah, he's part of this strange conspiracy secret agent thing that's happening. And Magwamp like kind of congratulates him on like succeeding the mission to assassinate. He suggests that he flees to the interzone and gives him a ticket, which is also transforms into like a vial of some kind of powder as well. Yeah. As objects tend to do in this movie, they tend to like transform into different things in different scenes. Right. So Bill goes to a pawn shop. He sells his gun. He trades it. He trades it with typewriter. He needs a typewriter to write his reports. Yeah, yeah. The typewriter he trades it for is a specific brand that the Mugwump recommended called Clark Nova. Clark Nova. Yeah, I like the name. Then he goes to the interzone. Interzone. Which is a place that's a bit like exotic, like Arabic. Which is based off of Morocco, but we'll go into that in depth later. He's working on writing using the typewriter with in a like a cafe restaurant where there are a bunch of other typewriters doing their job. And one guy comes to him, his name is Hans. Hans. Yeah, Hans. Hans seems to know Bill. And he seems to know Dr. Benway. Right. Seems like he's interested in selling some of that black centipede powder to Dr. Benway. And he thinks that Bill is kind of the connection that can help him do that. Right. So Hans takes Bill to the factory where they make the black powder, which is like a gigantic centipede, like hung from like a ceiling. Yeah, it's like they kind of take the centipede and they grind it up with like a meat grinder thing. And I guess they dry it out to make Yeah, the but the powder. centipedes are huge. Yes. It's like two or three meters, right? They're very big, yeah. Very big, and like centipedes have lots of meat, like actual meat instead of like bug. Yeah, not a centipede that as far as I know exists in our reality. Yeah, I don't think that exists. <laughs> it yeah. would be scary. Yeah. So he gets the black powder. He mm -hmm. gets to try it and he takes bunch home. Yeah, he starts to really become addicted to the black yeah, powder. Yeah, he seems super addicted already. And he goes back to the hotel and trying to write with being under 
drug. Yeah, and his typewriter turns into an insect creature. Yeah, it looks similar to the bug he saw at the police office, but it's... instead uh, the bug's front face has typewriters attached. Yeah, it's half half insect, half typewriter. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I love that. I'd like a typewriter like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish they made those available for sale after the movie came out. Yeah. I'd, I'd buy one. And the bug typewriter, Clark Nover, talks to him. Yeah, it kind of tells him what to write. He's like, you should write this and write what I tell you to write and telling him what to do, like to go on different missions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he goes to the restaurant again and where he see, sees a couple, Tom and Joan. Right. And Joan looks a bit different, but she is the same as his wife he killed. It's the same actress, yeah. Mm, and it's the same name. And the same name. Same first name. Same first name, yeah. And with this guy called Tom, and uh, they're also right. Yeah, they're um, American expats mm. living in the interzone, and they're both writers. Right, and they're like throwing like a big party. And it's also suggested that their marriage is kind of a sham, that the husband is into boys, like young men, and that the wife sleeps around a bit. So he goes to the party, and I... He's, uh, yeah, he's escorted by a, f a couple of young gay men. One of them is named Kiki. Right. Who's a very nice guy who's like, yeah, I can help get you into this party. Yeah, he's a nice guy. So he gets to the party and he want to talk to John, I guess. But John says, like, I'll leave it to you. And then, like, uh, Tom tried to hook up with Bear. I don't know if he tr was trying to hook up with him. He was just kind really? of talking to him. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I miss... Because they, they said he was only interested in very young men. So oh, I see. I didn't think he was actually hitting on... I was I took their word for it that he wouldn't be interested in Bill um, because he likes younger men. But he's like kind of using his telepathy. Yeah, there's this cool scene where he's like saying all these things and Bill's like, why are you telling me this? And he's like, well, I'm not actually. I'm using telepathy. If you notice, my lips aren't matching the words I say. And then it shows that his whatever he's saying is different than the words you're hearing. Yeah, it's really yeah. Cool. And he, in his in like mind telepathy, he says uh, he's like slowly killing his wife, Joan, yeah. using some poison or something. And also using some different techniques, including magic, witchcraft. Huh. But Bill leaves. Yeah, he's, he gets, he gets he uncomfortable. Gets, he gets fed up and also I think he's kind of desperate to do some more drugs. Oh, the next day he is in, in a beach and he's found by a good-looking guy called Crockett. Yeah, Crockett. Crockett. And uh, Crockett takes him to his own, like, really fancy mansion for breakfast. Yeah, it seems like he's interested in him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seems like he wants to get to know Bill a little better. But then Bill says, I have to write. So I have to he... go write, which I think is also a euphemism for like, I need to go do more drugs. Oh. Yeah, Bill kind of turns him down. I see. And he, yeah. So he goes back to the hotel and he seems really, really under drug, really drugged. Yeah. Yeah. And then he sees a centipede in the bathroom and he uses his breast to kill that centipede. Right. And then he goes to the restaurant and meets Tom and John again. They tell Bill that Hans being arrested and deported. Right. So that means he's not going to be able to get his drug from Hans that he needs. Right. That he's super addicted to. So he starts to freak out a little bit. And they also tell him that the drug that Hans was selling was a completely normal thing, which makes him think, oh, this drug I'm addicted to, it actually doesn't exist. He starts to realize it. Mm. 
He actually writes that on one of his typewriters later. He writes, I'm addicted to a drug that doesn't exist. Wow, crazy. But Tom, he has a little bit of like black powder left. So Tom gives it to Bear. Yeah, and he, also, he gives his own typewriter to Bear. That's right. He's like, you should try out my typewriter. It, it has like a different personality. And he, they talk about their typewriters like their typewriters are alive and help control what they're writing. Right. Which maybe they are because it seems like they turn into insects and talk to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, something horrible goes wrong, Sarah. Yeah. Bill's typewriter eats Tom's typewriter. He's oh. like, it's an evil agent and it eats it. Yeah. Or as Bill tries to explain later, you know, I'm, I probably just hallucinated and I probably just threw it on the floor and broke it. Mm. It was yeah. great. It was one of my favorite parts. Yeah, yeah. The screaming that the typewriter made, like, ah! I was being eaten. So yeah, good. Yeah. So Bill thinks he has to apologize. He's also told that he has to seduce Joan. Oh, yeah. So it's that, kind of like part of his plan that yeah, he goes yeah, to yeah. seduce Joan. That Clark Nova tells Bill to seduce Joan. So he goes to see Joan at her place and... Tells her about the typewriter. He has another typewriter, but only writes in Arabic. Yeah. And they kind of have this sexy thing where he's typing with her and he's like, write something sexy in, a, in Arabic. And the Arabic typewriter morphs into like a sexy bug kind of creature and they end up having a threesome. Joan and Bill and the typewriter all having sex together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Typewriter turns into uh, a thing. Really crazy. A witch, I'm call it. Thing. It's a thing. It's kind of, can you describe it? It's like kind of half body. Yeah, it's got a human ass. And there's some tentacles coming out of the out. butt. Yeah. Little thingies. But also there's a huge kind of testicle looking thing too. It's what people would describe as Cronenbergian. Oh yeah? <laughs> yeah. Like whenever you see a weird messed up creature like that, people go like, oh yeah, it's like a Cronenberg uh, horror. Like he's famous for things like that. <laughs> yeah, it's like kind of combination of human body with centipedes, legs, and giant penis. It's definitely something I'm going to have a nightmare about. Yeah, so there's the having sex and then sure enough, a woman comes. The woman, her name is... Fedela. 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 Fedela counts. She's introduced as just like a cleaner or like... Yeah, but she seems to be in charge. She's like, she's a very like strict person, like almost like a dominatrix or something. She's got like a whip. Yeah, yeah, she has a whip. a horse whip. And she kind of forces on the Arabic typewriter. Makes it run and kill itself off the balcony and then it's smashed. Yeah. Which means poor Tom has no more typewriters. Ah, poor Tom. And Tom sees the destroyed typewriter. Yeah. And he comes to the room and then he finds the old mess. And Tom has kind of an assistant. Yeah. I don't know if we ever learn his name, but his assistant finds some like kind of witchcraft bags being planted around. Mm. And he says, oh, Fidela must have been using these like witchcraft things to control your wife. Everything she says. But of course, we also learned earlier through the telepathic conversation that Tom has been using witchcraft to like try to murder his wife. So it might have been actually put there by Tom. Oh, Tom is really upset by the fact that his typewriter is destroyed. So he desperately needs 
the other typewriter which Bill has. Yeah, he says, I don't feel comfortable not having a typewriter in the house.、Mm, but Bill destroys the other one. Yeah, but Bill doesn't fess up, does he? He's like, you know, I want to borrow it a bit longer, so maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Tom says, I need it. I'm going to go with you to get my typewriter. But then John says, no, I'm going to go with him. And then they go together. But on the way, they run into Fidela. Yeah. And she has a group of women with her who are all her lesbian lovers.、Mm. Seems like she almost. Puts like a spell on Joan, and Joan kind of like changes, like a very weird edit. Like, there's a strange edit where you see like Joan almost like transform into like a different Joan,、mm. and then she goes over to Fidela, like almost like she's in some kind of trance.、Oh. For me, that was actually one of the weirdest moments in the、oh. movie. So, Bill goes back to his hotel by himself and tells the insects typewriter what happened. But then Tom shows up with his assistant, and he has a gun, and he's like, Give me my typewriter. Back. Yeah. But they find the broken smashed typewriter. Yeah. So they take the Clark Nova. As hostage. Yeah, but also because he you know, needs a typewriter. He wanna, he, yeah, he uses it. But now poor Bill has nothing to write his reports with. So, like, his next scene was like him sleeping in the beach. Yeah. And then his friends, Martin and Hanks, show up. Yeah, they've come to rescue him. Yeah. And it turns out that this whole time he's been writing a novel and sending them pages, and there's publishers interested. And they tried to get Bill back to, back to America.、Yeah. America, but Bill refuses. Yeah, they're like, okay, you can finish the novel. But、yeah. Come as soon as you're done. They leave, and Bill seems really sad, and he starts crying. And Kiki、uh, finds him and says, Are you okay? And Bill says, I left my only friends, and I will never see them again. And he also says, like, His typewriter's destroyed. Oh, yeah, yeah he's carrying、uh, the other typewriter. Yeah, he's carrying like a bag full of the broken typewriter parts. Yeah, not the Clark Nova one, the other one. That he borrowed from Tom. Yeah, yeah. We should also note when his two friends looked in the bag, he's like, These are my typewriter parts, and they look in the bag. Instead of typewriter parts, it's a bunch of drug paraphernalia. That's right. But Kiki says, Don't worry, I know where to fix that typewriter. And they go to like a repair place, which is more like a blacksmith. <laughs> and like the blacksmith guy t h r o w the like scrap typewriter, typewriter into a fire. And Bill says, I don't know if it's gonna work. It seems like they're treating it really roughly. It doesn't seem like they do delicate work.、Mm. But sure enough, he forges a new typewriter in the shape of a mugwump head. Yeah, mugwump.、Oh, I、like、also love the mugwump typewriter. I also want that. If David Cronenberg, if you ever listen to this podcast, that is a merchandising opportunity. I will buy a mugwump typewriter. I like Crack Nova better. That one would be easier to use. The mugwump one, you got to stick the fingers inside the mouth to yeah, type. Yeah, but sometimes it's like a head, but sometimes the entire body shows up, and the entire body is a bit creepy. The best thing about About the Mugwump typewriter, is it has these little like tubes coming out of the top of his head、yeah. that squirt out some kind of alcoholic or drug beverage that you can drink and enjoy if it likes your writing. Yeah. What a great typewriter. Oh, a bit creepy to me. Yeah, anyway, he gets his new typewriter and he starts writing. Trying to finish his book. Yeah, and Mugwump 
starts talking to him. Oh yeah, and Kiki, he's in Bill's bed. Right. It seems like they slept together. Yeah, it seems like they slept together. So on one hand, it's like Bill needs to finish his book. Mm. But on the other hand, he really wants more of the black powder. Mm. Or he needs to solve the case that the bugs are giving him. So he needs to find Dr. Benway. Yeah. He's told that one lead to find Dr. Benway is through Croquet. And Kiki knows Croquet. So they go to meet Croquet. Croquet has the most wonderful car. Mm. Kiki really loves his car. Kiki's such a fun character. Yeah. He doesn't deserve what happens next. Bill right. <laughs> gives like a kind of really long story on the drive. A long story about a guy whose ass starts talking. So they arrive in Croquet's house and Croquet seems like he wanna have sex with Kiki. Yeah, but Kiki only seems like he's interested in playing with Par- his collection of parrots. So Bill like kind of goes to leave the room for a while and uses the leftover black powder. He hears like kind of noise by Croquet and Kiki and he opens the room. Yeah, and you kind of expect that they're having sex, but instead he's doing something really strange and very unpleasant looking for Kiki. It's like he's turned into some sort of creature and he's got claws in Kiki's head and it doesn't seem like it's a good outcome for poor Kiki. Seems like he gets kind of sucked. Being drained of his yeah, yeah, yeah. blood or something. Yeah. Like a parasite. Or... Yeah, parasite. That was a shocking scene. It, it's, a, it's one of the scariest scenes in the film. It's very terrifying. Up until now, I think all the puppets and kind of creatures have been kind of cute and fun. Yeah, they're I didn't cute. find any of them disturbing, but that scene is disturbing. It was scary. So Bill's run out. Yeah, he leaves. And also he got his lead. He found out from Croquet that he needs to go find Fidella. Yeah, yeah, because uh, Croquet says like Fidella and Benway. They're uh, intimate. They're intimate. Yeah. He uses not the word cl- intimate. But they're not clear about what he means by intimate. No. So he goes to Tom and John's place first and he gets Clark Nova back. Right. He trades the fixed typewriter for the Clark Nova. But the Clark Nova is in rough shape because it's been tortured by the enemy agents. Yeah. So he ends up just having to leave it on the sidewalk. He just kind of abandons the typewriter. Poor Clark Nova. He's my favorite. Sad. He finds a place where the Fedela is. It's a drug Dora. factory. Yeah. But instead of making the centipede meat, they're making mugwump jism. Right. The cum that comes out of the tentacles on a mugwump's head. Yeah. And all the mugwumps are kind of chained and hanging up and some people are drinking, sucking directly from the mugwump's yeah. tentacle. That seems a bit disturbing to me. It was a bit disturbing. Yeah, those poor mugwumps. Yeah. They don't deserve that. No, mugwumps like have some, they're like really chained and like hung up. And then there's John and Fedela. And John seems like she's in a bad shape too. Yeah, she's been like kind of enslaved in this drug factory. Right. So they see Fidella and then he's like, where's Benway? And she's like, Benway? And she kind of rips herself in half and it's like a fake suit, like a fake costume. And it's Dr. Benway underneath. He's been behind it the whole time. And he says, uh, centipede meat is out. Mugwump jism is in. It's the new drug. Yeah. He says, listen, Bill, I need someone like you working for me. What do you want? What do I have to give you in return for you to work for me? And he said, I want her. And he points to Joan. Right. And he's like, all right, we can work something out. So then him and Joan start fleeing in this van to go to a place called Anexia. Anexia. But they get pulled over by some police and they're like, what's your occupation? He says, I'm a writer. Can you prove it? Well, I have a writing utensil. And he pulls out a pen. He's like, well, that's not enough. 
enough, you have to prove by writing something. And then he turns to Joan in the back and says, Joan, it's time for us to do the William Tell routine. Mm. And he shoots her in the head again. That's the end. That has been our recap. So if you remember at the beginning of the film, I don't know if you noticed or not, it said that Naked Lunch is based off of the novel by William S. Burroughs. Mm. Are you familiar with him? No. Well, he was a famous writer who was part of the Beat Generation. The Beat Generation was sort of like this generation of writers who were all kind of friends and they wrote poetry. It was like, you know, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. Are they America? Yeah, okay. they're all Americans. You know, the guy who wrote like On the Road and stuff. William S. Burroughs was kind of the weird one among the bunch. Mm. And he wrote really strange kind of stream of consciousness books and Naked Lunch. That was his kind of most iconic work. Mm. But Naked Lunch was more of a book of like kind of vignettes and short stories. It didn't really have a plot. Mm. And some people started to become interested in making it into a movie. Mm. And the book itself was so controversial that it was banned in several countries. So William Burroughs himself said nobody can ever make this into a movie because it would cost 400 million dollars to make and it would be banned everywhere. Oh. But David Cronenberg wanted to do it anyway. So he adapted the story, but instead of just adapting the book, he kind of took elements from the story and elements of William S. Burroughs' actual life and combined them to make a brand new story. Oh. So this movie is actually very autobiographical, telling the story of William S. Burroughs' actual life. Really? Wow. So he actually goes to Morocco and like Russia looking place? Yeah, that's right. William S. Burroughs was living in Mexico with a common law wife. And one night they were like really drunk or doing drugs and there was an accident and he shot his wife in the head. That really happened. Wow. One version of the story is exactly like what you saw in the movie. He was just drunk with a bunch of friends and he just suddenly said to his wife, let's do our William Tell routine. And he shot her in the head by accident. Wow. Another version of the story was that he was actually loading a gun and the gun went off by mistake and shot her in the head. Oh. But we don't really know which version of the story is true. I see. And then he was arrested and put in jail. But at the time in Mexico, things were a bit corrupt so a friend of his bribed the people keeping him in jail to release him after only 13 days oh that's short mm. so he was like set free and the horror of knowing that he had done this horrible thing to his wife is actually what caused him to become a writer oh. he said that he never would have become a writer if it wasn't for the fact that he had accidentally killed his wife Aww. it's kind of like he did this horrible thing but on the other hand everything in his life all happened because of this horrible thing he did oh. which almost feels like a bit about what the movie's about because it's like he has to kill his wife in order to become a writer and I think that's maybe why it repeats at the end I think the thing about it repeating at the end in order to get what he wants and be a writer he has to make this sacrifice hmm. wow I see William S. Burroughs for a long time lived in a place called Tangier Morocco there was a time where it was not really owned by any country it was kind of like a free zone hmm. where anybody could go and you didn't need any passport to live there and kind of like exactly what you see in the movie. Mm. It doesn't actually exist anymore. I mean, the place still exists, but it's no longer... Now it's a part of Morocco? That's right. Oh. And actually, David Cronenberg wanted to shoot the movie there. He wasn't originally going to shoot it in Canada, even though this was like one of the, at the time, one of the biggest budget Canadian movies of all time. It was actually a co-production between Canada, Japan, and the UK. Really? What happened is, right before he was going to shoot it in Morocco, the Kuwait invasion started happening the Iraqi war started breaking out oh. and so he had to settle for shooting it in Canada so it was all shot in Canada yes wow it didn't look like it they did a really good job yeah and I think the sets they built to like look like Morocco 
was a cool thing in the end because it felt like a lot more dreamy like than yeah. it actually shot in Morocco. Yeah, it's like like beach scene looks a bit more like I don't know, it doesn't look like Morocco. The it beach looks, some, some scenes don't look like Morocco. All the Morocco scenes look like they were shot on an indoor sound stage, which oh. I'm sure they were. But yeah, it adds this like cool kind of dreamlike effect. Yeah, that kind of makes me think is he really out of America? Is he like stuck in America and just dreaming about the entire like interzone place? Yeah. It's never like questionable whether it's all real or not. Like they kind of tell you throughout the film like this isn't real. Like the character even says like I probably hallucinated that, mm. you know. So William S. Burroughs actually was an exterminator. That was uh, based so off of his true life. Huh. He was homosexual uh, or bisexual. Yeah. Maybe. And he also, you know, was heavily influenced by drugs. Uh, he was like a junkie and he struggled with drugs a lot. Uh, so Joan Lee, his wife in the movie is based off of Joan Vollmer, who is his actual wife. Uh, and the characters of Hank and Martin are based off of Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, who are both very famous writers from the Beat era. Oh. Allen Ginsberg wrote a famous poem called Howl and Jack Kerouac's most famous book is On the Road. Mm. And they were all friends. And when he was writing Naked Lunch, it was kind of a similar thing where he was really high on drugs, really depressed, and they kind of encouraged him like, look, man, you got to finish your novel. And they helped him through it and helped get his novel published. Wow. So they were like really instrumental to his success. Oh. And the characters of Tom and Joan in The Interzone was based off of a couple that he actually met, a couple of actual writers, some playwrights. Paul Bowles was Tom. Mm. And Kiki was the actual name of a young man that Burroughs had a same-sex affair in Tangier while writing Naked Lunch. So all of the oh. characters are based off of real people. Wow. I like those people, like, nice. Yeah. Especially Kiki and, like, his friends. Marley and Hank. Yeah, Tom is portrayed as a bit of a villain, though. Yeah. The desert in the movie, because they couldn't shoot in the actual desert, they shot it in Toronto in a former munitions factory, and they recreated the desert by pouring 700 tons of sand onto the floor. Ah. Like all the, all the Moroccan stuff. Right. You mentioned when we first started watching the movie that the opening title sequence is very, very long. Yeah. The opening title sequence was meant to be a homage to a visual designer named Saul Bass, who's a guy who made a lot of movie posters and he also designed some opening film openings he was like a famous graphic designer i think he did like the opening sequences for some of the james bond movies Oh. So that was like, that was David Cronenberg paying a homage to him. Mm. So yeah, so a lot of the things in this movie were things combined with William S. Burroughs' crazy short stories and his actual life. Mm. Now you explain to me, the movie makes more sense. You know, like the kind of hallucinations he's having, it's almost like they're kind of based off of the insecurities that someone who's a writer and a drug addict has. Like there's a scene near the beginning where he's talking about you're an agent and being an exterminator is only your cover story. Don't be like a secret agent who forgets that he's really a secret agent and starts believing that his cover is real. Mm. It's kind of like a metaphor for a writer who has a day job and then starts to give up on his writing dream and only wants to work at their day job. Oh. That's how I interpret it. Oh. I'm, I mean, I can't believe it took me so long to watch it, but I feel like this movie is really a movie that expresses well what it's like to be a writer. The relationship between you and your typewriter and the weirdness you go through in your writing. So it's like really interesting. We see movies about being a writer twice in a row? So William S. Burroughs was heavily into magic, which we'll talk about later. Okay. And especially chaos magic, which as you know, a lot of it has to do with synchronicities. So let's talk about some synchronicities between Naked Lunch and the last movie we watched, Barton Fink. Barton Fink. So both of these movies are about writers. Right. And both of them take place
place in the 40s, 50s. Yeah. And both of those movies came out the same year. Really? They both came out in 1991. Oh, wow. Here's the fact that's really gonna blow your mind. Hmm. The actress who plays Joan in this movie is the same actress <gasps> who played the woman in Barton Fink. Really? Yeah, who gets murdered and... I thought she looked familiar. It's the same one. Oh! How crazy and oh, weird is I that? I thought she looked familiar and I thought... I, I was sure I saw her somewhere before. You saw her in Barton Fink. Oh! And in Barton Fink, she's also the muse who gets killed by a writer. Yeah! <laughs> so many synchronicities. Oh, but you say like Barton Fink won a bunch of like awards and that means I guess this movie didn't get any. Well, actually, this movie did win some Canadian awards. Canadian awards. So first of all, this is a very big budget movie. It had a 17 to 18 million dollar budget, which was very big for a Canadian movie mm. at that time. And how do you think this movie did at the box office? Can you guess? Do you think this movie made a ton of money or not? No. Only made 2.6 million dollars and was considered a huge box office bomb. <gasps> Oh no. However, it did win an award for Best Director and seven Genie Awards. Genies, for those of you who don't know, are the Canadian equivalents of the Oscars. Oh, I never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, because nobody really takes them seriously. <laughs> but the Genie Awards, they won several Genie Awards. Oh. Including Best Motion Picture for the Genie Awards. Oh. I don't think it was nominated or won any Oscars, but for Canadian Awards, it did really well. Wow. And even though it wasn't a hit at the time it has since developed a cult following oh. as classic weird movie and has gotten a criterion collection release oh so they eventually made enough money to cover the cost i don't know maybe <laughs> who knows <laughs> making a weird movie is so difficult making money off of weird movies is difficult but not impossible as we have watched some weird movies that did make money so you said that's like co-produced by canada uk and japan right yeah. That means UK and Japan covered some of the expenses. And lost their money, <laughs> I suppose, yeah. Uh, you think it was screened in Japan too? I don't know for sure, but it does have a Japanese title. So I assume it was. In Japan, it was called Hadaka no Lunch. Oh. But I don't know any details about how it was received in Japan or mm. anything like that, unfortunately. So a lot of people said that this movie is more about David Cronenberg than it is about William S. Burroughs. But I don't know if we're going to get another chance to talk about William S. Burroughs on this podcast. And we're definitely going to talk about David Cronenberg again because he's made like 20 movies. He's been very prolific and most of his movies are very weird. So I'm sure that this will not be the last David Cronenberg movie that we discuss on the podcast. But I do want to talk about William S. Burroughs more. Okay. Because he was a very interesting dude. Mm. I sadly never read the book Naked Lunch. I really want to. I mean, I hadn't seen this movie and I'm not an expert at all, but he was a really interesting guy. He wrote a bunch of different books that all kind of take place in this sort of shared weird universe. In addition to like Naked Lunch, he wrote Junkie, Interzone, and he used a technique called a cut-up technique, which was sort of based off of work by his friend Brian Geisen. He knew this guy named Brian Geisen. They were both into magic together and they did this technique where they would take books and they would cut them up and then sort of shuffle them randomly and make new stories by just randomly taking words from books and messing around with them. And that's how Brian Geisen created a lot of his artwork. That's how William S. Burroughs wrote a lot of his books. And he inspired a lot of other artists 
to do the same. He was a big influence on the music industry, like a lot of songwriters, including like Kurt David Cobain Boy? and David Bowie. Yeah, took their inspiration for their songwriting techniques, writing sort of surreal, nonsensical lyrics by using cut-ups, which they got from William S. Burroughs and Brian Geisen. So he started it. They started it, yeah. They started under influence David Bowie. David Bowie cool. and Kurt Cobain from Nirvana and many other musicians. Oh, Nirvana too? Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Like there were so many rock musicians who loved him. He was invited to be in like music videos and really? he was he was even asked to be an actor in a Jim Jarmusch film. You know, he lived in obscurity for a long time, but later on in his life, he became something of like a counterculture celebrity where everybody kind of loved him, you know, mm. even though it took him a long time to get there. He became very, you know, very successful and very, you know, beloved among the world. And, you know, he lived to be 83. He died in 1997. Oh, so he might have seen the movie. Yeah. And I tried to find some interview or information about what he thought of the movie, mm. but I couldn't really find anything. Oh. So it's possible it's out there, but I don't know how he felt about this movie. Mm. I can't help but wonder, though, like how he must have felt watching the movie, like particularly the scenes where the wife gets shot, like... Must right, have been hard. Right. By the way, the lead actor who played Bill, mm. that was Peter Weller. He has such a severe, serious face. Mm. Probably his most other role that he's most famous for is Robocop. Anyways, he starred in the first two Robocop movies, and the third Robocop movie he turned down in order to do Naked Lunch. <gasps> Wow. And Robocop 3 kind of sucks. And maybe that's because of Naked Lunch stealing Peter Weller away. You think the actor was like one of the main reasons why those movies are good? He was a big part of it, yeah. Hmm. But I mean, also it was well written. The writer was different on the third movie oh. too. So. But yeah, William S. Burroughs had like a really interesting life. He was a world traveler. He like hung out with all kinds of famous people. It's almost too much to talk about. But one thing I would like to touch on because I have an interest in the occult was he was a prominent occultist and a big part of the chaos magic scene. Hmm. He was into like discordianism, the cut-ups that him and Brian Geisen created. All sort of the spirit of chaos magic. Oh. I actually did an art gallery show because I used to be an art gallery technician where right. I put up a bunch of work of Brian Geisen. And one of the things was a thing that Brian Geisen created called the Dream Machine. And the Dream Machine was basically like a cylinder shaped piece of paper, kind of cardboard, kind of like our shadow puppets with like a bunch of slashes and shapes cut out. Mm. And you were supposed to put it on your record player, turn on your record player and hang a light inside. And then you close your eyelids oh. and you watch the light reflecting on your eyelids. It was known as the first piece of artwork that was meant to be viewed with your eyes closed. I and, see. And if you stared at it long enough, it was supposed to give you some hallucinations. Like you're supposed to like see visual things without doing any drugs. It was a way to get high without actually putting any chemicals oh, in your body. Really? Can you really do that? It works for some people, yeah. Some people swear by it. Oh. And Brian Geisen was like so convinced of how great an invention was. He believed that it was going to replace the television in people's homes. He thought the <gasps> family would gather around and watch that instead of TV. Unfor really? Yeah. Unfortunately, it never caught on oh. as strongly as he wanted it Is to. Is he Canadian? No, he wasn't Canadian. He was born in the UK. Oh, okay. You know, the whole cut-up thing. Some people say that William S. Burroughs came up with it, and some people say that Brian Geisen came up with it. And no one really knows, because they came up with it together. Mm. You know, he also wrote for, like, some magical publications. He was, like, a big part of the Chaos Magic movement, including the IOT, the Illuminatus of Thanteros, which was, like, kind of, a, like, a magical order. He was really interested in combining magic 
with technology, which was like a big part of the early chaos thing, was like modernizing magic from just like doing spells at an altar. He was like, let's try doing things with technology. So one thing he did was there was like a cafe. They were really rude to him. They were really mean to him in this cafe. Mm. So he took a recording using a tape recorder mm. of the cafe and then would play it back over and over again outside the cafe to project their own negativity back towards them oh. through audio. And apparently it worked because that cafe closed down like a month later. Oh. He apparently practiced magic every single day of his life from the time that he was 13 years old. He did like scrying, which is, you know, looking into like a crystal ball or a black mirror. He did things to protect him against possession. He laid curses on people who made him mad. He was very much into the occult. And I think a lot of that sort of occult magical thinking entered into his work, you know. And the idea of taking reality and fantasy and combining them in a way that where you don't know what's real and what isn't real mm. was a big part of his work and also a big part of this movie. Yeah, so that's Bart and Fink. Yeah, I mean, Bart and Fink came out the same year and they also do that thing where you don't know what's real and what's not real. Yeah, like in a way that they both are like did a really good job mixing like reality and dreams so that the audience the can't viewers, yeah. tell. I know this is a tough question, but and I don't think I can answer it, so maybe it's unfair for me to ask you, but which movie did you like better, Bart and Fink or Naked Lunch? Ah, they're both different. They're so different and they're both great. Like, they're both awesome. I found that this one's more entertaining. This one's definitely weirder. Weirder and more entertaining because of the puppet. Like, mm -hmm. lots of scenes, like, really weird, crazy, great scenes with puppets. Bart and Fink is structured perfectly in my yeah. opinion. I think it's really well structured. And this movie is a bit less structured. It's kind of like a bit... A little know, more scattered. It, it's still good, I it, think. It never gets boring. Yeah. Like, it never, there's never any lulls for me. Like, for me, I was fascinated and interested from the beginning to the end. Yeah, like, Bart and Fink, the pacing on, like, how to wrap up is really, like, a perfect. This one is... I don't want to criticize it, but there's a part I thought it's gonna be, this is gonna be the end. And they still go, keep going. Yeah, I felt that way too. I wonder if it's the same part. But I there remember. Was, it's yeah. like when Martin and Hank leave and he's like crying. Oh, you thought that was gonna be the end. Yeah. And then it keeps, the keeps going. I really like the ending where they go to like a different place. That's Annex. Annexia. Annexia is also made up name, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, li I like that. But like, there's, I thought there's one part like which it's gonna be the end. David Cronenberg, I guess, sort of based it off the true story. And the natural place for the real story to end, I, I suppose, is when he makes the book and finishes and is successful. But we never actually see that in the movie. Yeah. It's maybe shown to us kind of symbolically. But we also get like this kind of sandwich thing where it's like we need to be reminded at the end of how it all began. With mm. Him shooting his wife. Yeah. I didn't know what that means at the end. But you kind of, after you explain, you know, that's like in his act. Uh, life he accidentally shot his wife and that starts his career so in order to keep going he has to sacrifice uh, I thought that makes sense I think that's what it was about mm. it was like this feeling of having to give something up Right. And it, it wasn't intentional. Obviously, he's not like intentionally giving something up, but it's a matter of, you know, good coming from the darkness. Mm. 
And when you know that the good has come from the darkness, it's so much more difficult to like let that darkness go. Yeah. And a lot of this movie, and it's not because Peter Weller isn't a good actor. He's amazing. But it's really hard to know what Bill is thinking in a lot of the movie because he's so stoic. But there yeah. are some moments where he breaks down and you realize, wow, he's suffering a lot from the guilt of killing his wife. Yeah. I like the character of him like really being like, like you said, being stoic and doesn't show lots of emotions. So when he actually shows the emotion, he looks more like, seems like meaningful. Yeah. There are a few scenes. He also never, almost never gives a straight answer. He's very like, mm. when somebody asks him something, he's kind of like, well, yeah, maybe. He's like very, you know, one word answer kind of guy, monosyllabic at the beginning. But then when he starts to open up and become more his self and reveal himself, he starts to speak a lot more and he like delivers these long stories and mm. you start to see inside him. It's like a really interesting way to like slowly unravel this character. Mm. The story that he tells in the car, the long car ride, that's a word for word excerpt from one of William S. Burroughs' stories. Oh, I see. So he's basically reading one of William S. Burroughs' stories and a lot of the little lines of dialogue and stuff writing, they're all like kind of quotes from William S. Burroughs' work. Mm. Uh, when you, you compare between Broadway and this movie, it's like the main character is more likable. In this movie. Yeah, this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. And, you know, Barton Fink is fictional. Mm. He's maybe based loosely off of the Coen brothers. And we right. know that the Coen brothers are great writers. Yeah. Of course, they're amazing. But I don't know if Barton Fink is a great writer. Barton Fink, the character, seems like he's kind of a crappy writer. While Bill Lee... Bill Lee, by the way, was actually a pen name of William S. Burroughs. Oh! That's where they got the name for the character from. But Bill Lee, you imagine that he's actually like a pretty interesting writer. Like, you'd enjoy his work. Yeah. Because he basically is William S. Burroughs, and William S. Burroughs was a great writer. Mm. I think David Cronenberg really wanted to show that in this movie. You know, he might not have followed the book very closely, and some people might have criticized him for making this movie more of a David Cronenberg thing than a William S. Burroughs thing, but I think David Cronenberg actually did a good job of paying respect and homage to William S. Burroughs. Yeah, I think so. Like you said, it shows the fear of, like, if you want to get something, you need to make a sacrifice. Yeah. Do you have that fear? You know, it's like a really common expression, and lots of, like, stories using that kind of basic theme is try to get over that like if you want something you need to sacrifice something and try to like figure out how to get over this rule. I've certainly believed that strongly in the past and now I feel like I don't believe that as much anymore most of the time but I go back and forth on an intellectual level and an intuitive level mm. because I try to sit, tell myself you know there's lots of people who got success who didn't have to give up Mm. everything and we kind of discussed this in Barton Fink because Barton Fink perpetuates this idea that in order to be a good writer you have to suffer all right and this movie is kind of this a bit similar it's like would he still be a good writer if he didn't have this suffering or this pain mm. from a personal level I want to believe I'm a good writer and in fact I have suffered a lot of pain I had like mm. a very painful past in a different way I never shot anybody yeah <laughs> but still it's like I want to let go of that pain and it's like, if I keep that pain in my heart, does it mean I'll be a better writer? Is there a fear to let go of that pain? Because if you let go of that pain, then you can't be a good writer anymore. And I want to believe that it's not true. I want to believe that you don't need pain to be a good writer. Mm. Although so many good writers became good writers because of this place of pain that they came from. Mm. 
I can never erase the pain I experienced in the past, but I can I can try to like let it go. But then does that mean my writing won't be as good? And I, I feel like I need to believe that that's not true. Mm. But maybe it is. You know, I have doubts. Who knows? Right. What, what do you think? Do you think you need to come from a place of pain or have a traumatic past to be a good artist? I personally don't think so. It's more like, uh, you know, when people actually have something like bad happens, it's like, like you can compare which is worse, like objectively, but you can't compare emotionally or internally. And like how you feel, like how you receive that, even if like it's like really tiny thing, like the bad thing is like a small thing compared to other people from outside point of view. Like if the person receives is really significant, it must influence the person and like make the person develop to interesting characters or like understand other people's feeling or like understand like world differently yeah i personally don't believe like if any like childhood experience or like any experience which if you don't have any experience you wouldn't become a good artist I mean, you raise a good point, too. If you have some traumatic, painful experience, it's not like you're going to guarantee to become a good artist if something horrible happens to you. The thing that makes you a good artist is more about how you handle the pain and how you deal with it yeah. than, than the actual pain itself. Yeah. It's like the act of getting over traumatic events kind of like matures you and makes you more aware of things in the world. It makes you question everything and it almost helps create this understanding and like way of looking at the world in different ways as like a way of dealing or coping with your trauma and trying to get over it, which also are things that help you mature and strengthen as an artist. Yeah, and also my personal belief is like good artists always try to tell other people their messages like instead of just like producing something without showing it. Mm. The artist wants to say something that hopefully change the world or society or people's thoughts to be a better place. People make these YouTube videos or these statements and they're like, I believe this and everybody should do things this way. And if you read anything about psychology, you know that that doesn't work. You know that just like preaching your belief to people in a straightforward way isn't going to change their beliefs at all. Mm. It doesn't work. You can't change someone's political affiliations or beliefs or their belief on climate change or anything by just saying, hey, man, it's this way they, you know, people won't listen. A better way or maybe a more effective way is you kind of got to like conceal that message in some kind of code that that person can unravel and learn from their self, which is why I think weird movies have such a strong value is when you're trying to figure out what these weird movies mean, you learn about the message of the filmmaker and you interpret it in a way and show an understanding that affects you way more than if it's just somebody straightforwardly telling you like, hey man, you should should throw your garbage on the ground or, you know, whatever message it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that was a silly example, but, no, it's... but I, I fully agree. You shouldn't throw your garbage on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do want to talk about a gentleman named John Board a little bit before okay. we go. Just a personal story. The assistant director on this movie. Oh, uh, yeah. Was a guy named John Board. And as far as I know, John Board was the assistant director on most of David Cronenberg's movies. 
I just looked him up to see if he was still alive, and sadly, it seems he passed away two years ago. Oh. But I actually worked on a movie with John Board. Cool. There was a movie called Summer Babe, although I think Summer Babe was the working title, and it was actually released under the title Who Loves the Sun. And I was the prop master on that film, and John Board was the assistant director, and he was famous for being David Cronenberg's assistant director. Wow. And he was very old at that time, but he had like a huge amount of energy. Wow. He was like really over the top, and he took kind of a personal interest in me. He was like, I'm going to take this young guy under my wing, which was not something I wanted at all. I was, <laughs> I was 25 years old at the time. I was like, get this crazy guy away from me. And he was like really mean to me, but he was doing it in like kind of a loving way where he was trying trying to give me lessons. As he would scream at me constantly. Mm. I had to call him sir uh-huh. all the time or he'd get mad. He'd be like, oh, where, where are these, you know, props or whatever? And I'd be like, oh, they're over there. He's like, they're over there. What? Uh, they're over there, sir. <laughs> he was very strict about, you know, saying over when you use the radio. If uh-huh. you'd get really mad if you didn't say over at the end of you know, uh-huh. on the radio. He was a very energetic person. At one point, I remember we were doing a lot of scenes involving water and boats Mm. and he just jumped into the lake at one point because he wanted to move the boat or something Mm. and he was wearing you know a five thousand dollar radio on his person which was destroyed because he jumped in the lake oh no but he that's he was he didn't care he was a passionate guy and i remember he was into holistic medicine he had his own like thing called a filmmaker survival kit which was just a bunch of holistic medicines in a box Mm. and he was he was like a walking infomercial every day he would try to get everyone on the set to like try his holistic medicine (laughs) for everything. I remember at one point I slipped and I hit my head and he just shoved this thing into my mouth without my permission, (laughs) this medicine. And I didn't want him to do it again. Mm. He said, is it still hurting? And I said, no, it's fine because I didn't want any more medicine. He's like, yeah, see, it always works. (laughs) Yeah, he was a crazy guy. And uh, Mm. you should mention the place you're from is Winnipeg. The place for weird movies, right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, as a Winnipeg guy, I've met a lot of weird filmmakers. You know, I've I met Guy Madden and John Pace. I never met David Cronenberg, though. Oh. But he's still around. Maybe one day we'll meet him. Yeah. <laughs> he's still making movies. He's 77 years old as of this recording, and he's still making movies as far as I know. He's a weird filmmaker from Canada, and he's he won't be the last one we do on the show. We need to do more Canadian movies. Oh, yes. Because, you know, I feel like there's a running competition between what countries are making the weirdest movies. Japan has obviously made a lot of weird movies. Mexico is a contender, but I really want Canada. I'm, you know, I'm going to put my stake Canada because I'm Canadian and and I may not be the most patriotic guy in the world but when it comes to weird movies I'm gonna say Canada has the weirdest movies all right Uh, right into the show or send us a message on Facebook and tell us which country you think has the weirdest movies are are we gonna have a fight Sarah are you gonna argue that Japan has weirder movies in Canada and Uh, we're gonna I'm a beginner weird movie club so I don't have any uh, opinion about that can't judge which countries make more weird movies that's true We've got a long way to go yeah. in our weird movie journey. I might have to watch at least 100 to judge that. All right. We'll have this conversation again when we get to the 100th episode of Weird Movie Club. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it was a fun one. Man, Naked Lunch. What a great movie. Yeah. Can't believe Loved I, it. Can't believe I waited this long to see it. Mm. I'm going to go on the internet after we're finished this.
this and Google on eBay to see if I can buy myself a Mugwump typewriter. Yeah. Or a... Clark Nova. Clark Nova, yeah. I like Clark Nova better. We'll end things with The Leg. We'll let The Leg take us out by telling us what next week's movie is going to be. But from me, Daniel... I'm sorry. Keep it weird. Club. No. <laughs> Keep it weird, club. So long. Bye. Thank you so much for listening next week's movies. Children of the Sea. That's right, the leg. Next week's movie is Children of the Sea, the Japanese anime film from 2019, directed by Ayumu Watanabe, based off of the manga by Daisuke Igalashi. Until next time, would you drop some of this bug powder on my lips?